0: Now, as a church, um, we've patterned ourselves after the model that we see in the New Testament um, that makes it clear that elders do the majority of the teaching in the church. Uh, however, the Bible also says, the New Testament also says that if you've got a gift of teaching, that you should teach as well. And so we like to encourage people who aren't elders to teach in our churches as well because they've got a gift of communication to help us. And Andrew Wilson is one such individual. Um, as of Wednesday... Andrew was, is, was and is now long, no longer an elder of King's Church. Um, those of, Many of you will know that Andrew's role has changed. He's now on staff with King's Church London and also serving us a couple of days a week doing various things. So we're thrilled for him and it's something that we've been working towards the church and we've been aware of for some months now. Uh, but this is probably in all likelihood one of Andrew's few times that he'll be here in the flesh with us. I imagine because he's only able to preach once a month that um, the majority of the times he's able to speak will be in Eastbourne and we'll probably get him on live telecast. Um, But uh, we've got him in the flesh today and so not only is it probably one of the last moments in his flesh, I think it's a time for us as well just to express our gratitude to you and for all the times that you've served us so well here in bodily form, and just all that you've brought to the church, your gift we really appreciate, but your example to us as well, your character and your leadership we're so grateful for, um, and for your friendship. So why don't we show our warm Seaford appreciation to Andrew as he comes to speak. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. What, what's the music? There's a joke in the music, there always is. What is the music? All oh, right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. That's very, very kind of you. Um, in, the, in the sort of collegiate spirit, actually undermining slightly the lovely words Jez has just said, I saw Vince and the gents earlier. Uh, Vince, who was playing the drums, and you said, "Ah, oh, so this is your last Sunday. You're going to be here in bodily form? Yes, yeah, all right. Jez has renewed, uh, withdrawn your visa. We're pulling up the bridge over the Cookmere and never allowing you back." I thought, "Oh, thanks." And in that spirit, I thought you might like to know that last week, so you did the sports. A lot of you were there for the sporting event last Sunday afternoon. No, no, no. There's no taunting about the fact that you, that you didn't win and that Centro did. Because I'm not from Centro either, really. But what I will say is that as I was leaving, I heard this kid of about eight who's from Hamden Park. And it was just walking by, I don't even know their name, but I was walking past them and I just heard them go, to be honest, I'm just glad that Seaford didn't win. (laughs) I just thought that was brilliant that Jez has managed to create, engender hatred within the children of the other... And it's all about Marlon's spandex-covered performance at the... the, um, at the event we had at the Congress, I think so. Uh, it's just nice to know that there's a bit more sort of solidarity forming between the congregations. But it is really, it's really nice. And uh, yeah, whether this is the last time or not, it's really lovely to be with you. Um, and we, we're actually finishing off a series we've been in on One Samuel over the course of the summer. And uh, some of us have probably dipped in and out and been away a bit, so it might be worth summarizing what, what we've been doing. But 1 Samuel is a book, if you're new, uh, is a book that's kind of 3,000 years old, and it summarizes the story of how Israel went from being a bunch of collected tribes to a united kingdom together under one king. So at the start of the story, they're judged or led by various judges. They're called sort of these prophetic leaders like Eli and Samson and Deborah and uh, various other people, and that Gideon and other people like that. And by the end of the story, they're being led by one king, um, Saul, who's just at the very end of the story dies, and then David takes on the kingdom. So that it's quite an important, very important period in their history, and it's what sets up the kingdom. And establishes the the monarchy and obviously establishes in the end the temple as well so it's a big deal for Israel and that's the story we've been looking at and the way we've done it is we first we we summarized the story and we turned if you remember this large space up here into sort of a map and ended up having a series of battles and fights and talked about the the ark the box of God's presence and how Israel responded to his presence among them and some of the mistakes they made and what happened next And then over the course of the summer, we've looked at various characters from the story as well. Looked at Hannah and Jonathan and David and Saul. And then today we're going to finish the series by looking at Samuel, uh, who is the guy who gives the book its name and therefore is a really important figure. But he's a slightly interesting character because although he gives the book his name, he's only in half of one of the two books named after him. So he has one and two Samuel named after him, and he disappears from the story halfway through one Samuel. So he's quite an interesting figure. He's very important in setting up the book, But then he disappears slightly mysteriously, apart from the fact that he reappears after he's died, which is in a very odd story, and we will look at that very briefly in a moment. But what I want to do is to look at Samuel not just as here's a few interesting things about Samuel's life, the end, but to read the story of Samuel as a paradigm or a perfect picture, or not a perfect picture, but a a very um, I need a word here, a a very clear, a very definitive picture of what a prophet looks like in the Old Testament. He is like a paradigm of a prophet. He's somebody that you would look to and say, people use the word prophet in the rest of the Bible. What do you think, what's a prophet like? Samuel would be one of the very key figures they would look to. They'd say Moses, Samuel, Elijah, maybe Isaiah. But they would sketch out people around the model of somebody like Samuel. And I want us to look at Samuel that way for two or three reasons. Because Samuel, as I said, he disappears halfway through the first book. But he still has the book named after him. And the reason is because he is the prophet that lays the foundation for everything else that happens. He's the one who speaks the words of God to the people. He's the one that defines the way the rest of the story will go. So he becomes important because he's the prophet guy. And that's a reason to look at him as prophet. That's what's important about him. So what's important about David? Well, he's the king. What's important about Saul? He was the original king. Jonathan, he's the loyal friend. Hannah, she's the faithful mother. What's important about Samuel? Oh, he's the prophet guy. That's what matters about him. And I think that's one reason to study him as a prophet. Another reason is that his prophetic identity is what connects this book to the gospel. So if you read 1 Samuel, and we've probably made this point a lot over the summer, you read 1 Samuel and you can see another story in the background the whole time. You see this this. This woman who's asking God for a baby, and in that you see the picture of Elizabeth and Mary at the start of the Gospels. You see this prophetic figure saying, a king is coming, and God's going to anoint him, and you see John the Baptist. You see the king, David, coming, and you see Jesus. You see Saul, the older king, who's trying to kill the new young king, and you probably see Herod. You see David's friends, his mighty men, wandering around with him. Hiding and ducking and weaving and keeping out of sight. And you see the disciples. Who, And then you see the march on Jerusalem. And you see the march on Jerusalem. And you see the the stories that run in parallel in a lot of ways. But it all begins with Samuel as prophet. The guy who steps in and says, God's coming. God's going to do something different. He's going to bring about a kingdom. And so that's why Samuel's important, not just in the book, but in the whole Bible. And if I'm honest, I also have a third, more personal reason for talking about Samuel as a prophet, which is that this book has been very prophetically influential in my own life. I just want to mention a couple of examples of why. Jez has just said, it's, I, I stepped down from being an elder this last week, but over the last 10 years, really, the reason I've been in this church for as long as I have so far, really, is because of a prophetic word that we, were, we received about 10 years ago, about being in a, in a private contest, about six of us in the room, but Rachel and I were, had a, a prophetic guy called Keith who was speaking to all of the leaders about individual things, and he. But he said to me, "We were about to leave. We'd, we'd um, not for a bad reason at all. Just we, we'd recently been married. We felt like, well, I don't know what we're going to do. Maybe there's a leadership challenge ahead. Let's look and see what it is. Let's see if we're going to go and I'm going to go and lead somewhere in another church." And we were looking at that, and we were in this gathering, and this prophetic guy said. Brother, he would, he's one of those guys who would call everybody brother. Brother, God, I think that's usually what happens when people forget your name. It's just a, if, if, In fact, if I ever do it to you, it's certain that, that particularly <laughs> if you're a woman, it's certain that I've forgotten your name. I, I would generally do sister then. But, um, but he's like, brother, uh, God says that there's a Jonathan season for you now. You're to be a Jonathan season. Like, not a David. You may be a David in the future, but for now, you're going to be in a season of carrying somebody else's armor and work, covering their back and defending them and protecting their interests. And later you'll find people will do that for you. But for now, you're to be a a Jonathan, somebody who's a number two guy who stands next to the guy who's in charge and helps him. And I knew it was God speaking to me about serving Graham in that way in the church. And we've spent the last 10 years here, really, because of that prophetic word. So this book's been very prophetically shaping in my life. And then more recently, there's a serious bit here and then a silly, a funny bit here, which I hope you'll think is funny. And if not, I'll feel embarrassed. But, um, but there's a, the serious bit of this. This is just a year and a half ago. We are in a, a church prayer meeting, and there's a woman's conference about to take place, which the, a lot of the women in the church are going to go to. Some of you went. And... Um, and it's down, down in Brighton. And so what we did, unusually, was we said, now let's have men praying for the women. And normally in the church, this is like a rule of charismatic churches, wherever you are in the world, men never pray for women, and women never pray for men. It's the sort of rule we all have. Um, and it's probably a good one, but it sometimes feels a little bit weird. On this occasion, it was men praying for women because it was a women's conference, so who else can do the praying? And Rachel, my wife, is, um, has these two guys, both of whom are quite serious Intense kinds of characters who are sort of gathering around her and praying for her. And there was this beautiful prophetic word that came through, and then a cataclysmically awful faux pas that came in the midst of the prophetic word as well that made her really want to laugh. And, but the serious bit, which was beautiful, and the reason for mentioning it is they're laying hands on her and praying. And, and we are, at the time, have told nobody, but we're, we're thinking we've got two special needs children. We wonder, could we always written off having a third child? Would we be able to? No, oh, okay, well, probably not. And we're just beginning to think, maybe, I don't know, maybe this would be a possibility. Hadn't told anybody, hadn't told our parents, no one, friends, nobody. Just begun to talk about it. And this guy, just out of the blue, starts prophesying, saying, I believe God says that he's heard your Hannah's prayer. And he's going to confirm it to you this weekend at this conference through the word of two or three witnesses. And Rachel's like, whoa, that's... That's amazing, Hannah's prayer. He thinks he's meaning metaphorically. But she's thinking, Hannah's prayer, that's a prayer for a baby. That's exactly what I'm talking to God about. How could you know that? So anyway, she goes off to this conference. And on the Friday evening, she begins to talk to her sister about it and say, I don't know, we had this word, it was really amazing, but I I don't know what to make of it because I just can't help thinking that if we were to have a third child, we would somehow need a third adult in our family as well. I just don't think we could cope unless that happens. I don't know how this works. And then the next morning she goes to the conference and another friend comes up, who knows nothing at all about this, either of these stories, comes up and says, I don't know what this is, Rachel. I just had a picture for you, um, but I just felt God show me a picture of a baby's high chair and next to it an adult's chair as well. And I don't know what it means, but I just thought I'd leave it with you. And walked off. And Rach's like, wow, God is speaking. So we ended up thinking, yeah, okay, God is in this. And I think we can take, there's always a risk to bring a child into the world. And play. We, we thought, yeah, okay, well, in that case we will... Try and have a baby. And we four months ago, our son was born, and in the same way that Hannah called her son Samuel, which means God hears. We, we called Sam, him Samuel as well. And it's just, So if we, if it, we really feel like, prophetically, this book has given us a child and ten years of just a wonderful place to serve in the church as well. The funny bit of the story I will tell you is that while Ian was... And he knows that I'm telling the story because I told the whole church in Eastbourne a couple of weeks ago. While Ian is going for it and using biblical imagery, uh, he, he uses like slightly an image that with hindsight when talking about pregnant women is probably a little inappropriate um, where he was just sort of going for it and saying, Lord, I want to pray for Rachel that you, as she goes to this conference you would bless her mightily, Lord God. May she be like the woman with the oil with those huge jars. Oh, Lord, fill up her jugs, Lord. And, and Rachel in that split second was just like, Trying to th- she said to me afterwards, she said, I could feel a crack in his voice as he said the word jugs. I think he realised what he'd done. And he's like, oh, fill a jugs, Lord. This sort of little noise came out. And uh, she said, I was trying to think of pets dying. I was trying to do everything I could to avoid laughing in this beautiful prophetic moment, which I felt had slightly gone weird. Um, but anyway, there's, so there's a, I have a, a personal prophetic history with this book as well, which, I, which is worth sharing from the p- context of prophecy Anyway. Because it reveals the kinds of, what we mean by prophecy sometimes is a little vague. Um, But those are two examples of prophetic words we've had, or I've had, that have really shaped our lives. And so I want to look at one passage in particular in 1 Samuel, which is chapter 7. And hopefully we might have an appearance. Yeah, we do. Um, So 1 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to ask a specific question of each section of this story, which is, what does a true prophet look like? Let's take Samuel as an example of a true prophet, a really good example of a prophet. What does that look like in practice? And I think that's a very important question for us to ask because often, particularly if you've been around churches like this, charismatic churches for a while, you'll know that prophetic ministry sometimes gets associated with some slightly incidental funny habits that we have rather than anything that really is what the word means in the Bible. So prophetic ministry might, or a prophet, might mean somebody who speaks even in a particular style. Yes, I just believe God, you know, almost as if that's pro- what prophecy is. It's somebody who puts a particular face, screws their face up, so begins to declare things, thus saith the Lord, if you're in more Pentecostal context or something. It might be people who sort of, you know, have, affect a certain voice or begin to talk about a, a sort of an atmosphere of something happening. And sometimes people, God does speak that way. Some people prophesy that way. A lot of the time, that's not what pro- prophets do. And in the Bible, none of those things are really mentioned. The issue is not so much how do you say it, What's the form of speech you, you use? It actually is much more about people who speak and speak to the people on behalf of God. And in the Bible, usually they're talking about worship, they're talking about justice, they're talking about mission. They're not primarily talking directionally for individuals, although they do do that as well, but that's not the main thing they do. My, a lot of the time, you read the Old Testament, the prophets are generally calling people back to worship God. And that's important for us to get, because otherwise we end up forming a sort of in-house habit way of thinking about prophecy, that some of us go, I love speaking like that, and some of us, to be honest, just get weirded out. I think as people, we're on a spectrum, and some of us will be like, I'm quite charismatic weird i'm quite loud i'm quite confident i'm pr- quite prepared to do silly things like you know stand, you know stand, jumping around and hopping and I, if somebody says do them i do them I, i'm quite a confident person but there's a lot of people around me including in my own family who get really spooked when people do that and it's actually not helpful for us to say prophecy is acting weird in a christian meeting and actually a lot of the time what prophets do might seem very normal but what it involves doing is declaring what God would have his people do to his people in ways they can understand. And often that does focus on, as I say, worship, justice, and mission. And uh, so we're going to have a look and see what a true prophet looks like in, the, in these passages. 1 Samuel 7, and beginning at verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. That, oh, yes, direct, oh, it's turned into a quote. I like it. Turn it back to the next page. That's good. That's a good little summary, John. Thank you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. That, in a way, a hallmark of a true prophet is that that's what they do. They call people to worship the Lord and him only. And that's what Samuel does throughout his life and ministry. That's his, one of his big things. You say, what's a prophet? Oh, he's a person who turns up in front of the people of God and says, hey, worship the Lord and no one else. Put away false gods. That's what Baals and Ashtaroth are. They're fertility gods, phallic symbols, that sort of worshipping the, the gods of the sun and the moon, that kind of thing. Put that away and instead worship the Lord only. And that characterizes Samuel's whole life, that that passion. That's why he gets so upset when the people ask for a king. We want to have a king like the other nations. I don't want you to be like the other nations. I want you to worship the Lord and him alone. It's why he tells Saul his kingdom is over when he doesn't obey God and destroy the Amalekites. All the stories we've seen through this summer where Samuel confronts anybody about anything, the chances are that it is about Samuel's concern that people worship the Lord and him only, because that's what prophets do. It's even, bizarrely, his passion after he's dead, So you've probably already heard this story, but Saul, when he's worried about whether or not he's going to win a particular battle, consults a medium who speaks to Samuel after he's died. It's a very strange story, and I don't know quite what to make of its significance for mediums and the dead today, to be honest. But as he's doing it, Samuel, the dead Samuel effectively speaks to Saul, what are you doing? This is wrong. Even after death, he's still angry that Saul would be as sinful as to consult a medium or a necromancer. So Samuel's passion that people worship the Lord only dominates his life even into his death. Prophets do that. Prophets are passionate that people serve only God. And that's true of Moses, it's true of Elijah and Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Jesus. And it might not necessarily involve what we might think of as standard prophetic habits. It might be done in a very normal way. It might be done in, in preaching. It might be done in, I think in some ways, David's word this morning. You might not say, oh, well, that's a prophetic word. It didn't predict the future in a way. But actually, David's calling people to worship the Lord only. In some ways, that is a, the voice of a prophet speaking. Um, and that doesn't mean he's about to do a mystic meg and start saying, oh, you know, I, and Jenny, I see you're wearing a multicoloured dress, and there's a multicoloured man will appear. And you know, I mean, that does, I'm mean, i not disparaging that, right? I've just given you examples of that kind of thing in my own life, of people speaking with clarity about my future, so I don't disparage it. But I just understand that the Bible doesn't limit prophecy to that. It actually expands it to say, this is speaking on behalf of God to call the people to worship him and only him. And that's what Samuel does. Next bit, 1 Samuel 7 verse 5. There's five sections we're going to look at, by the way, so that's the first one. The second one is here. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we've sinned against the Lord. Now, brief side note, somebody who gathers together Israel, calls them to repentance and pours water might remind us of John the Baptist, and just seeing little themes in Samuel's life that are like John preparing for the true king, which is David and Jesus. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, as in the baddies in this story, went up against Israel. Now when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. A true prophet prays, and the Lord answers. Right? Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answers. That's a second characteristic of what true prophets do. They pray. They are devoted to prayer because they're the kinds of people who know how much things mean to God and what it will mean for God's people if they fall away from him. And so they call out to God for his justice. They call out to God for true worship to be restored. They call out to God for what we might now call something like revival or the animation of the person by the truths of God to renounce sin and to follow him only, as we've just seen. Prophetic men and women are men and women of prayer. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, it popped up all the time. You read Their ministry is always bound with praying. In fact, you read the Psalms and you say, is that prophecy or is that prayer? Well, kind of both. You read Isaiah, is he prophesying now or is he praying? Well, kind of both. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, these guys, they are speaking God's words at the same time as praying for God's people to respond. And you often can't separate them out. Because to be somebody who's burdened with what God wants to say to his people is always to be a person who's going to ask God to come and bring change in order to make it work and to cause complete transformation in their lives. You even see it in the book of Acts, in the New Testament. You see people, while they are worshipping and praying, God speaks through a prophet. You'd expect prophetic... Where are you going to find prophets in a given town? You'll find them in prayer. you find them praying corporately, individually. That's just likely to be something they do a lot. A prophetic church is a church that prays. I would This is an overstatement, but the, I would say the vast majority of times, I've, I've sort of clearly seen or heard God speaking in the sense that you think everybody in the room goes, wow, that was, that's from God. We need to respond now to that. That's clearly the voice of God. The vast majority of those cases in my own life have been in prayer meetings, which is not to say God can't do it in other settings, but he often does. And that's because there's something about joining together in prayer that aligns our hearts to hear the voice of God and aligns our hearts to respond to what he's saying. And, uh, and it's true for me personally as well. When I've spoken prophetically, I don't do that much, I don't think, but when I've spoken prophetically over people as individuals, it's often been because I've been praying for them at the time. And as I'm praying, God begins to speak to me about them. I just think... I can't make more of a rule than that. But just to say there is a strong connection between prophetic people and prayer. And this is Samuel's experience. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. I love how Samuel signs. Just as he's he's making his leaving speech, if you like, in chapter 12, in verse 23. He's signing off, really, saying, you guys are going to have a king now. I'm out of here. And he says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you which is a wonderful way of signing off. It's like, okay, I'm going. You guys have asked for a king. You shouldn't have, but you have. You're going to get one. God's gracious. He'll be with you. By the way, I'm not going to be unfaithful to God by stopping to pray for you, even though I'm going. It's a wonderful part of a prophet in prayer. A true prophet prays, and the Lord answers. Third section. Here's what happens next in 7 verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth A true prophet proves God with signs following. So Samuel's prayed and the Lord answers. And then, as a result of his prayer, the Lord thunders from heaven with a mighty sound. That in a sense, the prophet is not only praying and challenging the people, he's also seeing that God has vindicated the fact that he's a prophet by showing a sign, by demonstrating that he is one of God's men or women. Signs follow true prophets. A true prophet proves God. And so when they speak on behalf of God, something comes about to demonstrate that this person is genuinely speaking for God rather than blowing smoke or rather than lying or trying to deceive the people. Human words are vindicated by divine action. That's what happens when prophets speak. That doesn't mean it's always thunder, of course. In Samuel's life, funnily enough, it often is. There's two separate stories, one good one, one bad one, and both of them are accompanied by thunder, um, which is strange. And in his case, that's the way it works, one here and one in chapter 12. But often it'll be other things. In Elijah's case, for instance, fire comes out of heaven and burns up a sacrifice. In Jeremiah's case, the people go into exile for 70 years. So it's not all immediate moments of drama. It's not to so, say, oh, goodness, when David spoke this morning, no fire came and there was no thunder. Gosh, David must be an idiot. That's not the way it's going at all. Actually, there's vindication of divine activity that might work in all kinds of different ways. Jeremiah, it was a 70-year journey into another country. For Agabus in the New Testament, if you come across him, it's a famine a long way away amongst another group of people that the church is then going to fund and support. My favourite one is in Deuteronomy 18, which is just simply that the prophecy comes true. That's, that's the sign, is that the prophecy actually happens when someone predicts something. Moses' common sense test. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, he says, if the word doesn't come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You don't need to be afraid of him. Which sounds very obvious, but in some ways you need to hear it sometimes. I've, in pastoral life, you sometimes meet people. I've met a number of people like this where... They received a prophetic word, by which, you know, it's often kind of a terminology for somebody who spoke something on behalf of God to them as a young person, and they've lived waiting and waiting and waiting for 30 or 40 years, and it's still not come about, and they can get quite upset. And I know one guy in particular who left the church about 15 years ago, some of you know them, basically over this issue. They had a prophetic word that they were going to do some amazing thing, it never happened, and they just lost. Kind of nearly lost faith in God certainly lost faith that God was going to bring them into fruitfulness and so on because the, the, the prophetic word had kind of bound them up and not come about and Moses, Moses would liberate people a bit like that say if this thing doesn't come about that might just mean it wasn't God doesn't even mean the person who said it was a liar or a charlatan we don't know can't always explain why these things don't happen but what you can't do is think oh well God doesn't know what he's doing no it just might mean that person wasn't speaking from God that's okay. Happens sometimes. Move on. And I think the, the, the reality is that a true prophet has signs that demonstrate that they were telling the truth. It's what leaders have to do sometimes. We've had a number of situations like that in the history of this church where the, the person who's leading the team or the, or the church has had to say, we believe God is saying to do this. And then to be honest, until you go and do it and God backs you up and provides the finances or the people or whatever it is you need, you don't really know whether it's God or not. It's quite awkward. I'm, mean, you know, being. I was. have been a pastor here for ten years. You go. why don't. Somebody says. I, I believe God said this. Graham says that. Or or whatever. I believe God says this. Is it God? Well, I hope so. Maybe. Let's do it, and we'll see. But until you've done it, and God has provided resources, or whatever it might be, the test that you that is met, you don't know. But a true prophet, whether it happens immediately with thunder from heaven or in other ways, will. Have their words backed up by divine action? That's what true prophets do. They they prove God. They speak for God, and God demonstrates. Yeah, that was me, and here's proof, if you like. Here's demonstration that's true. Now, if it was me, I'd stop there. I'd say, right, okay, I call people to worship God. I pray for them, and then when I pray, God does what He needs to do, and that's all I've got to do. But Samuel does more. Samuel knows the job isn't done yet because. So this is the we've had a battle, right? Samuel says, people worship the Lord. Right, we're going to go out into battle. I'll pray for you. You go out into battle and you win. And that's what they do. They go out and they pursue them all the way as far as below Beth-car. They win a massive victory. And you and I would probably at that point go, great. I'm, I'm a good prophet. I've done it. There we go. We won the battle. Sit down. Put your feet up. Samuel knows that's not enough because Samuel knows people forget. And a true prophet reminds people of God's acts of deliverance, even after they've happened. Look at this, It's 7:12." Then Samuel took, to the battle's over. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. I'm thinking a stone not like the kind that we have on the beach here. I assume. I don't think everybody, oh look, that, that pebble proves it. God has been faithful. I'm thinking something like a sort of an ob I always hate this word, obelisk, obelix. Which one is the stone and which one's the asterisk guy? The obelisk. Yes? It's just one of those words I've got a blank on. An ob- I'm just imagining, anyways, a sizable stone gets plonked down. Or a menia or something like that. So people walk past. He sets up a stone between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, until now, the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. And so he sets up a symbol, a big physical thing that people can walk past and see probably from some distance and say, that's the stone that reminds us of that day God fought a great battle for us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. So a true prophet reminds people of God's acts of deliverance. Because prophets know it's not enough for me to say, God's going to be with you. God's won a great battle. Hooray, the end. Let's go and put our feet up. Because people forget. Because people have a wonderful victory won in God. And in a few days, weeks, months, even years later, they're saying, I'm just not really sure. I I don't think God's with me. I don't think God's good anymore. I'm just not sure. It's been a tough time. I'm in a difficult season. Maybe God has gone. And the prophet knows that's a problem people have, and so he sets up an Ebenezer. He stands in front of people and says, I need to keep reminding you of the realities of the grace of God and favor of God in your life. Because you've already forgotten them. And again, it's one of the things you have to, we have to do as a church for one another. You probably, this is how, what encouragement often takes that form, doesn't it? You're talking to somebody or praying or you're in a life group setting or something, and somebody is saying, I just feel like God has left the building in our lives for now. Us, as a family, as a person, this is such a challenging time. And often what we do as the people of God, it's a prophetic function, is we speak to each other and we say, you've got to remember this victory that God won for you. You've got to remember that. Remember when we asked for this and God did that? A lot of us, we will we'll literally write them down. We've probably got journals with, or blogs or, web, I don't know, places where we store bits of information, things that God did... So that we can remind the people thus far, until now, the Lord has helped us. So that you can walk past and say, yes, that stone points to it. Not allowed to do it in this building because it's not ours. But in the Hamden Park building, we have a, a literal thing like that. We have a plaque on the wall that says, in one day, we paid off £380,000 of this mortgage. And we, fit, we basically bought back the whole building in one, in one hit about seven years ago, whenever it was. And we literally put a, a plaque on the wall. And so you walk past it now, and it's just a reminder. Until now, the Lord has helped us. The Lord has done some... Everybody at the time went, that's just silly. We're not going to do that in one go. But it's nice that you're asking. We'll we'll try and take a third of it. And it all went in one go. And this needs an Ebenezer. This needs a thing, a, a memorial that points us to the acts of God in our defense. And that's true at individual levels as well. It's good for families to have them. It's good for groups of friends to have them. That's what prophets do. They... And that probably sounds strange to some of us because we're used to thinking a prophet is all about the future. This is going to happen then. That's what will happen then. Actually, a lot of prophetic ministry is often about the past. You'd be surprised but you read Isaiah, Jeremiah and the rest and you'll think they are repeatedly referring to what God has already done in the Exodus or in whenever it was and to Abraham and beyond. God did that then and then and then and then. Look at his record. So trust him in the present for what he will do in the future. Prophets do that, and a large part of our prophetic calling, even as a church, called to be those who are the the heirs of the prophets, as Peter says in Acts 3, is to remind ourselves and one another of God's acts of deliverance in the past. Until now, the Lord has helped us. I don't know what he's going to do next. I don't know why this has just happened. I heard somebody in the so, who has been in the, who had been in the church for many years who died yesterday and just was young and was a really painful situation for a long time and finally died yesterday. And I heard the story this morning and just so often you get that all the time in a church of our size you, where just people are experiencing suffering all the time. And you think, I don't know what to make of this. I don't, I don't get that. And Steve, uh, Steve Labor, one of the other elders and I were standing next to each other just, how do you make sense of this? Yeah, this is just so painful. And then, It's in context like that, which happen all the time in our family life together. Just saying, we've got to have places where we go back and say, I don't know what God's up to. But God, until now, has always helped us. And so we go back and we look at our stone, our Ebenezer, the thing that we've made, whether it's a plaque or a little family habit we've grown, whatever it might be, a Passover meal in the case of Israel, and we say, he's always done it before. I don't know what he's doing now, but I trust him. And that's what prophets do. And then finally... Notice how the chapter ends. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. A true prophet stays the course. True, false prophets don't. False prophets flit. False prophets are attracted to the latest new shiny thing. Oh yes, I think this might be happening. (gasps) Yeah. Oh no, it didn't happen. But this might be. This is the next big thing. Oh yeah, let's go over there and have a look at that. True prophets might have less drama sometimes, although thunder's pretty dramatic, I think. But what they do is they just keep going. They go and then Samuel went on a circuit. So he went, okay, I'm going to judge Israel from Bethel. I'm going to come over here and judge Israel at Mizpah and then judge them at Ramah and then judge them at um, Gilgal and then I'm going to come back to Ramah and judge them from home. Build an altar and then the next year I'm going to go off and, and and. True prophets do that. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He just consistently kept telling people, this is who the Lord is. Worship him. Here's what he's done. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to see God bring breakthrough. We're going to challenge you to continue following God and then I'm going to do the same again next year. True prophets do the circuit. They go round and round, year in, year out. They look to restore the throne of God in the hearts of men no matter how it happens and how long it takes and then they go home and then they worship and then they get up and then they do it again. Many There's people in this room who've been faithfully prophetic in that sense for a very long time, just staying the course. You know that nobody probably in your life has ever said, you're the person who brought the prophetic word that completely changed my life. You may never have prophesied a, a new baby into the world or prophesied a ministry direction for somebody, let alone seen thunder come or fire come out of the sky because you spoke. But you have also spent, many of you, a lifetime or decades speaking the truths of God to other Christians, reminding them of what God had done, praying for people and seeing little bits of breakthrough and then doing the same again next year. That's the kind of prophet Samuel is, and I think that should encourage you. Right? You may not get the thunder. Some of us don't. i never have. <laughs> actually I had artificial thunder. In preaching on one occasion, I actually got somebody to turn on thunder in order to try and make it oh, make the impression of the point I was making. But I've never had real thunder, I've never had fire. But you got to I, but I hope by the time I'm Whatever, God willing, 70, 80, 90, or whatever it might be, when I go, that I've spent a lifetime just pointing people to the fact that God is worthy of worship and that He's always helped us and praying for people and seeing God bring little breakthroughs or big ones and then doing it again the next year. That's the kind of prophet Samuel is. So a true prophet calls people to worship the Lord, prays, proves God, reminds people, and stays the course. But in many ways, you would look at that list and say, yes, yeah, Samuel's a good example that but actually if you read the whole story and not just this nice little section I've cropped out today you'd say yeah but he's good he's not perfect though he doesn't fulfill all of those things all the time he seems to have been had a, a, a number of failings as a parent his kids did not come through with anything like the passion for God that he had and he seems in a way in the story perhaps to be held a bit responsible for that in some ways as a prophet sometimes he judged people in a worldly way rather than in a divine way. He thought David was a waste of space when he first saw him. He said, this is ridiculous, God can't do that. He, he's not a perfect prophet. He's a good prophet. He's not a perfect man. So if anybody had seen that kind of ministry and then remembered the word Moses gave a long time before, one day a prophet like me will be raised up among you, they'd have looked at Samuel's life and they'd have gone, yeah, nearly, not quite. But a thousand years on from Samuel, Two prophets arrive in Israel at the same time. The older one's like Samuel and he lives out in the wilderness and he eats locusts and wild honey. And then there's a younger one, his cousin, who surpasses him by so much that the older one says, I'm not even worthy to tie up his shoes. And obviously his name is Jesus. And this prophet calls people to worship the Lord only like you've never heard it before. He's so animated by that desire for the people to worship god that he goes into the temple itself and he trashes it because he says you have not worshipped the lord only this is supposed to be a house of prayer you've turned it into a den of thieves and he goes crazy and turns the place upside down out of a passion for exclusive worship of the one god he's the kind of guy who somebody says what's the greatest commandment he says love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength that's the big one you do that he calls people to worship the lord he prays and the lord answers and that might be just as he's about to die. Father, not my will but yours be done. It might be when he gets up very early in the morning while it is still dark and goes into the hillsides to pray. It, in my, one of my favorite stories of this, of Jesus' prayer life, is when he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's standing outside the tomb and he says, Father, I know that you hear me. In fact, to be quite honest, I'm not praying this for your benefit but for this lot so that they know that I've already prayed and you're going to do it. Oh, by the way, Lazarus, come out. I love that, this reflection of his prayer life. He prays and the Lord answers. He is a prophet who proves God with signs following. Everywhere he goes, he speaks. The kingdom of God is coming, but as he says it, it's vindicated by divine action. Miracle meals being provided for thousands of people out of nowhere. Restored limbs, clean skin, empty coffins at funerals, open eyes, silenced hurricanes. The Lord thunders from heaven again and again on his behalf as he speaks the message of the kingdom. He's also a prophet who reminds people of God's acts of deliverance. And in fact, his parting gift, if you like, to the church was to set up his own Ebenezer, bread and wine, and say, you've got to eat this stuff. And as you do, you will remind yourself regularly, daily, weekly, whatever it may be, until now the Lord has helped us. When you do this, I'm setting up a memorial because I know you'll forget You'll forget even that I died for you and rose again for you unless we set up something that you have to physically put in your mouth to understand, yes, until now, the Lord has helped us. And the prophet stays the course. Jesus goes not just round the circuit year in, year out. He faces every challenge and he clears every hurdle and he gets to the point at the end of his life where he can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And then come back up from the dead and say to them, truly, I am with you always until the very end of the age he's the true prophet he's the true Samuel and I wanted us to finish uh now slightly overrun I'm sorry with uh, just by breaking bread and responding by taking hold of that Ebenezer again saying yeah until now God's helped us this is our stone of help so what we got we got a, a bit of bit of bread and some juice at the back there and over here to my left your right and if you're new to the way we do communion here, we, we say this is open for anybody who is a Christian. And if you're, so as long as you're not living in kind of direct rebellion against God, some of you may know you are. You may think, oh, okay, I'm, there is sin in my life, and I'm not going to go to the table, and you shouldn't at this point. But if you're saying, no, I'm, I'm repentant, I'm not perfect, but I, I repent, I ask God to forgive me, and I want to come and receive his forgiveness again, and you're a Christian from whatever background Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist, Presbyterian, doesn't matter. Anglican, come and join us. We'd love to do this together. So we'll take bread, we'll take, gla- take the glass of juice, come back to our seats, and then just enjoy that knowing that, that until now, the Lord has always helped us. Amen? Let's get to our feet, shall we? Jesus, we thank you that you fulfill all the good things that were ever said about anybody in the Old Testament. Lord, thank you that every story finds its fulfillment in you and that you are the perfect representative of God who calls us to worship him and who has always, always demonstrated that God will help us when we've gone to you. Lord, we thank you and we pray that as we take bread and wine now, or juice now that we would once again enter into that miracle of your forgiveness and freedom won for us by your death on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.